Now, if you have been around any institution, including the church, for long enough, you've probably witnessed some sort of fight in that institution. I mean, most of us have battle scars from the great plate fight of Ot 4, right? Will we go back to serving one loaf or not? I mean, we, we deal with this all the time. And if you really start to dig under those fights, more often than not, they are fights about means and not really about ends. Because I think when we have these institutions, we create this really beautiful shroud of visioning when we talk about the ends, right? I'm sure if any of you have been in business long enough, you have been and we're guilty of this too, you have been to a retreat where you get together and you vision after icebreakers and you come up with a big idea and you get all excited and you say, this is what we're going to do. Visioning has protection around it. Even outside the church, the process of worrying about the ends is a little bit more sacred, almost a little bit liturgical, Right? You go to your retreat, you know the order of visioning process. We have this process when we explore ends. But you know what? If you're talking about means, friends, the gloves are off, aren't they? You want to fight about something with a group of people? Go fight about the means. Politics in this country is literally designed to do this. Both parties can say, God bless America. And I believe them all. I believe that they want, you know, the deist American God to bless us and set us on our way. And I really think that most folks, irrespective of their political party, with some some that are outliers, very truly do want to find what's best for the country. But ask a Republican or a Democrat how, and they will have very, very different answers. The means are always the place where we want to fight. Now, why do y'all think, I mean, really, we focus so much on the conflict of means? I think there could be a lot of reasons for this, but perhaps more than any, I think it's the one closest to our control. If the whole idea of the vision is sacred and, and fenced off for process, will at least, if I'm not happy with the ends, I can grasp the means and do something about it. I have control over the means. But over time, what this can mean is that the ends get backgrounded. The ends become more noise than motivation. They sit at a distance. So instead of a straight line to achieve ends, we meander in wilderness of means as we continue to make overtures to power and control. Well, it's great that we love Jesus, but I want my plates the way that I have them. Did you know that somebody who, I don't think they've stepped foot in the church 60 years ago, well, they bought those plates. Don't you know we had every single special meal on those plates. I'm not saying that as a pastor's grandkid, I didn't experience this, watching people get upset about, you know, what pasta salad is brought to the potluck, but, but you know, a lot of people. 
All this to say then that it feels a little strange when Jesus gets right into our faces about means. Now, before we dismiss this passage, which most of my lectionaries at some point do the scholarly equivalent of shrugging their shoulders and saying, I don't really know what this is all about. There's like a fancy Latin term that one of them is like, which the definition really is like, we don't actually know what this is all about. Before we get to that point, we just dismiss it and everybody glazes over and we're ready for the Jags game. Let's not forget that this is not the first time that Jesus has kind of talked like this. When Jesus sends the disciples as sheep among wolves, he says, you must be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. When the disciples saw someone performing magic in Jesus' name and the disciples were getting bent out to shape about it, Jesus reminds them that whoever is not against us is for us, not the other way around. Taken together, along with this gospel passage, we can see that Jesus is pretty much unafraid of strategic thinking to get to the goal. He'd not be such a bad COO in a Fortune 500 company. But here, perhaps more than others, it starts to get at a little bit of our anxiety because he is praising and you can't get around the Greek in this, friends. Believe me, I tried. That this dude is dishonest. Like you can almost maybe, if you want to be creative, say amoral. But that's about the furthest away from dishonest and not right that you can get. Because the literal word here is a dikaios, which is the word that would mean not right. Caius' righteousness. So literally we're saying this guy doesn't get it right. And Jesus here is saying, y'all, I wish you were a little bit more like this dude. So he tugs at our sensibilities of what it means to be a good, upright person here. And what's funny is that when you put the last couple verses about you can't serve two masters and if you're, if you're not good with little, you're not good with a lot. It almost seems like Jesus is in conflict with himself, which feels a little scandalous. So I want to take a moment, and I, I want to go back, and I want us to hear this verse here, verse 8 and 9, with Eugene Peterson's touch from the message. So let's take a listen to this again. Now, here's a surprise. The master praised the crooked manager, and why? Because he knew how to look after himself. Streetwise people are smarter in this regard than law-abiding citizens. They are on constant alert, looking for angles, surviving by their wits. I want you to be smart in the same way, but for what is right, using every adversity to stimulate you to creative survival, to concentrate your attention on the bare essentials so you'll live, really live, and not complacently just get by on good behavior. You know, I think when we hear Eugene Peterson translated again, we start to see, hey, there might be a lot of truth to this. The manager here seems to be laser-focused on his end. The dude just got fired. And I'll tell you what, credit to him, 
and Luke's imagination as he tells the story and Jesus telling the story that there is this existential self-preservation tinted by his own self-differentiated honesty. In other words, the dude know he hadn't been to the gym in a few weeks and he was too proud to beg. So he's aware that he is limited by his options in order to survive, but as far as I know, there weren't any sort of unemployment checks that came their way, so he had to realize that it was got to figure something out or he ain't eating the next week. Now, whether he then, in his creativity, abandoned his own cut in order to make himself look better, or he cut out some of the rich man's bills, is uncertain. I think when you read the text, the best guess is that he is taking his cut out of the total. But either way, he definitely found a way to achieve his ends, to the point that his former boss tips his cap to him and says, you know what? I'm kind of impressed by what you just did there. And then Jesus turns it back on us. It would be pretty good if we were street smart for the right things. Because the truth is, dear friends, people are going to continue to do what they want for their own ends. This is why Amos makes an appearance here in the lectionary today. Keep in mind that the people who Amos is prophesying to are the people of the northern kingdom, God's beloved, God's chosen, who God brought out of Egypt, and they have their promised land, and they're living well, and in fact, almost a little too well. They are doing literally the opposite of everything God had called them to up to that point. This here in Amos 8 is at the height of economic injustice as people are actively manipulating the weights and measures as they go and sell their grains to maximize their profits at the expense of the poor. Now, not to say we do that anymore, wise, thoughtful people in 2022. This in Amos is street smarts for the wrong ends. If you turn a gauge here and you manage a dial and you reset the currency and you do all that, well, maybe you make a little money. You can almost see the shrewd manager perhaps doing something similar in order to keep himself safe. People are going to use whatever means to achieve whatever ends that they like. And unfortunately, that is the reality of a broken, imperfect world. So Jesus refines a little bit for us, and he says, well, you know, there are limits here. Integrity and honesty act as guardrails for means. But beyond that, it seems, if we take Jesus at his word today, it's a pretty open field. So how do we deal with a passage like this one? I think the first thing is we need to treat the ends of the gospel as though they are existential and be acutely aware of what they are. The world Jesus Christ invites throughout all the gospels is one of justice, one of right living, and one of flourishing for all. 
The gospel, when put into practice, can be the difference between life and death for many more people than perhaps we give it credit for as we're able to enjoy sitting in our pews on a Sunday morning. And certainly while we can argue and should often as good people with disagreements about particularities, the generalities of Jesus Christ throughout all four gospels drawing the circle wider invitations for those who are now just on the edge of that newly drawn circle to find themselves in the center, the encouragement to let the past go and reorient towards God's equal footing are not up for debate. Because they are what is truly life-giving for a world desperate to be told there is something other than nihilistic Cynicism. It would be nice to tell people who will wake up tomorrow morning that they don't know what they're going to eat, they don't know where they're living, that perhaps there are people who are trying to work hard to make that better because it's what Jesus would do. And that should never be up for debate. And any time some part of the gospel is strategically worked against, It should be resisted, even if it means transgressing our normal affiliations, because, y'all, we're talking about life and death for people. If it means your buddies are kind of like, why does your church go care for folks? Why is your church, like, paying off medical debt? Or they got themselves in that debt, which there have been plenty of churches who have paid off medical debt. It's because what Jesus would do. And if your economic system doesn't quite adhere to that, well, I'm sorry, because I've got different lenses, and really caring for the poor is never up for debate. And friends, our entire structure, our entire way of operating from a church, every single brick, every single dime should be working towards bringing life to what was thought to be dead. So we've got to have our ends focused and know what they are and be willing to recognize that it is existential to so many. The second thing is we've got to realign our energies towards focusing on that end and realizing that there are truly many means at the table. I recognize, and I tell this to folks plenty of times, that it's not everybody's, it's not in everyone's constitution to do everything. After all, this self-aware manager knew he couldn't work the fields, even though maybe he could have. He refused to beg. He knew himself. We know ourselves. I often tell folks that my whole career has been not the one shouting in the streets to say something's wrong, but the one back in City Hall trying to listen and say, well, how can we make this better? But it has meant I've had plenty of advocates yell at me, tell me I wasn't doing a good enough job. I try to remind them we're roughly on the same team, so work with me. Friends, that self-reflection should help us see that there are different people in this world with different strengths and weaknesses who, having found a home here at South Jacksonville Presbyterian Church, will work towards the ends of the gospel in different ways. It may mean that some of us are activists. It may mean that some of us are politicians. It may mean some of us are prophets. It may mean that some of us, after those activists and politicians and prophets have been beaten down to a pulp because this world is hard, there are folks who will stay here and bind the wounds and caretake 
those who are working hard for the work of justice. Every single one of those is valuable in the kingdom of God. The only problem here would seem to be that if we don't acknowledge that, well, if they're not against us, they're for us. Even to this point of discomfort. Like a practical point, y'all, I know some of you don't really like eye care. I know that. You might have gone once or twice and you're like, I don't know about all this chanting. And they're like yelling at, at these government officials. Yeah, eye care is not meant for everybody and that's okay. But eye care is effective at what it does. And it's made things better for a population of this city that oftentimes gets ignored. And so maybe we might say, you know, listen, I care it's not my bag. I'm not one to go yell at somebody, but you know what? I'm glad somebody does in this church. Because in the end, we might not be going the same means, but we are certainly headed towards the same ends. So how do we handle this passage? It's being laser-focused on the ends, aligning every energy towards that end, and realizing there may be different means on the table. And then finally, we must be unscrupulous about monitoring whether the ends actually are being looked towards. You know, if I were to give advice to anybody who was looking for a church, that would be my number one piece of advice. Maybe put it another way, check to see if the church is putting its money where its mouth is. Does it seem like they're making efforts to serve their community? Are they trying to draw the circle wider? Because it's hard work to draw the circle wider, but are they trying? And can you see it consistently over time, even if it's small? If a church says to, says to the community, well, we love everyone, doesn't that sound so good? Like every church should say they love everyone. It's sort of low-hanging fruit in the church world. The more interesting question is, if you say you love everybody, is everybody there being loved? When people show up on Sunday, they're different from each other. Do they look like they're being loved? Or is it just a good feel-good statement that gets people through a wide front door and they may find their way out. Are they willing, dear friends, to stick their neck out when the gospel demands a response? If the stranger in their midst who happened to be delivered to them, are they welcomed? Or do they keep their doors closed? Too fearful of a political statement from a transitory authority hell-bent on its own selfish gain. If we really do this, if we take Jesus at his word, I imagine that at times it will be scandalous. You mean to tell me that you all are willing to go against what the culture is saying to do what Jesus tells you to do? I mean, really? 
but it should also be life-giving, which interestingly enough is actually the thesis of the gospel that we heard today. Yeah, it's pretty scandalous that Jesus is saying, I wish you were more like this dishonest manager. I wish you were willing to push hard for the thing that truly mattered, the right thing. But I always go back to y'all. Imagine a church that actually did this. this. I mean, take a moment. That from Sunday to Sunday, the church was actually committed to going the places where people were really hurting. To letting them know that they were loved. To being unafraid to push the envelope for the need of care. Whether it's Martha's Vineyard or Jacksonville, Florida, it matters. Especially for the folks who it may be a life or death situation for. Friends, I stand here so many Sundays and I look across these pews and varying amounts and I feel so certain that this is the kind of church that can do that. Because if we don't, who will? Thanks be to God.